I actually had a kid write me after he went home saying, hey, you had such an influence on me shooting hoops and talking to me. I felt like I could talk to you about so many things. I actually lost that. Like, he was an overweight kid. He's like, I lost like 20 or 30 pounds and I'm on my high school basketball team now. And I attribute a lot of that to you helping me out. I want to be my current self from this point forward. I want to learn how to play piano. Working with human beings. Drinking wine in the middle of the day. I want to be a I'm going to be the next greatest painter. Just kind of work with kids, getting them ahead in life. I want to be a welder. I want to be a beach bum. I want to be a baseball player. Brewmaster. A winemaker. Professional snuggler. Let me mention those sweet, hot lavender baths and writing in the evening. What's up, everybody? My name is Blake Fletcher, and this is the Half Hour Interim Podcast, where we explore the interesting paths people take in life. In today's episode, I speak with Andrew Hermanson, who is a recreation therapist. So the first thing that we'll kind of talk about is what exactly is recreational therapy. For those of you that don't know, uh, Andrew will give a good background to all of that. And uh, then Andrew in particular has a very interesting job within recreational therapy, which is that he works inside of a forensic mental illness hospital. Um, so for those of you that don't know, that is a hospital where people who have been uh convicted of a crime or people who have been accused of a crime go if they are mentally ill. So he works with people inside of this hospital. So he's like the perfect person to talk about recreational therapy with because uh, it's already an interesting thing to talk about. And then he works in the most interesting setting you could possibly work in for this. So he will tell us all about it. Without further ado, here is recreational therapist. Andrew, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So. I hopefully this doesn't embarrass you too terribly bad, but if we could, I would like to start out by reading the email that you wrote me uh, about coming on the show. You mind if I read that to people? No, not at all. Your email says, I have the best job in the world, recreation therapist. I get to help people with mental illness through recreation. I think sometimes coworkers are jealous because it looks like we just play. But there is so much therapy that happens through experiences and recreation. I work at a forensic mental illness hospital, but recreation therapists can be found in any healthcare setting. We sometimes do one-on-one therapy, but a lot of what we do happens in groups. Giving a group a challenging task, even in play, exposes so much about the group dynamic that you would never discover by simply talking to people. Um, you go on to actually recommend that I interview some other recreational therapists. And then luckily it ended up being you that come on the show. Cause I love it when the person that actually writes the email is the one that comes on the show. So, um, thank you for being here. And, uh, I, I guess first let's just start out with what is recreational therapy. That would be like the best starting point for everyone. All right. Hopefully my professors from school aren't listening cause they drilled this into us when we were there, but, um, it's, a. <clears throat> holistic and purposive process in which we're trying to help patients uh, achieve assessed goals towards well-being and uh, a healthy leisure lifestyle. So the holistic part is that we're not really focused on one specific area like physical health or mental health or emotional health. We kind of try to address all of that because our ultimate goal is well-being and that can be defined a little differently based on the setting that you're working in. But We're just trying to help people have a high quality of life. And uh, we use recreation as a tool to achieve that. Recreation meaning uh, like because recreation means different things to different people. Like some people would just call going for a hike recreation. Some people would call going to the gym recreation. Some people would only call like playing recreation. Like what do you call recreation exactly? Yeah, I would say yes to what everything you said. So um (laughs) at least in my experiences, you know, the broad term of anything you're doing in your leisure time, uh, we kind of, we kind of use leisure and recreation interchangeably, even though they're a little different words. Um, anywhere from crocheting to stamp collecting, to hiking, to whitewater rafting, to podcasting, uh, anything that you're kind of doing as a free time activity, we're trying to help patients, uh, you know, in, in whatever, depending on the setting, find more meaning in that area of their life. Okay, cool. Gotcha. So, um, yeah, so a wide, a wide range of, of the definition for recreation. So before we get into, one of the reasons why I wanted to read off your email is, is your specific 
job in recreational therapy is so interesting. The fact that you work at a forensic mental illness hospital. But um, before we get there, let's talk about people that are not you that are recreational therapists. So what are different paths that other recreational therapists have taken? Like what are different jobs that you can get as a recreational therapist? Um, yeah. So if you think of any kind of uh, healthcare setting, there's probably recreational therapists that work in that field, maybe not necessarily at every facility. But um, we, we, we had a cool opportunity in school to kind of do a tour of all the different areas that we might, directions we might go. And uh, before we had really decided our path. So we went to a children's hospital and there's a recreation therapist there who just help the children feel more comfortable. And they plan activities to help the families feel more comfortable because these are kids that are in uh, serious you know, health problems in the hospital. There's people who work in community-based settings and they're working on uh, accessibility and helping uh, facilitate adaptive recreation as something that's available through the community. There's recreation therapists who work uh, in school districts and might work with students that have mental illnesses or physical disabilities, be able to participate in the sports and the recess activities that they do. Um, what am I forgetting? There's uh, a lot of recreation therapists who work in wilderness settings and uh, a lot of those are opportunities to take people out and uh, separate themselves from society. And a lot of times it's done with uh, teenagers, but, uh, you know, to help uh, behavioral issues. And a lot of a lot of recreation therapy happens in uh, geriatrics and, you know, nursing facilities, um, just helping them have the best quality of life as they get older and uh, to slow the decline of their physical and mental sharpness. Right. What so it sounds like the the goal of recreational therapy always has to do with with quality of life and and just making the person feel good. I imagine that the goals can get a little bit more specific or a little bit more varied depending on what setting you're in. So like are especially again for someone like you are, are the goals that you have with your patients slightly different than the goals that someone working in like a geriatric facility would have with their patients? Yeah, very much so. And in fact, they're going to be different goals within the forensic hospital, which we can get to when we talk about that later. But a geriatric goal might be, you know, Mr. Smith is having a hip problem and he needs to be active with that hip for 30 minutes a day. And uh, so you're just finding an activity that he'll do because maybe the physical therapist has said, hey, Mr. Smith, can you just walk for 30 minutes? And he's not wanting to comply with that. And so our opportunity would be able to come in and find something that he enjoyed doing that would achieve that same goal. Right. Um, so that might be, you know, I, I think there's a little bit more of a physical aspect uh, in a geriatric setting. We're trying to use recreation to keep them mobile and and uh, keep them as active as possible. And then in a mental health setting, you might have a goal to have them be able to identify three symptoms of their mental illness or something like that. Okay, interesting. And when you're trying to get them to identify aspects of their mental illness, are you uh, like, I guess, how do you work towards that? Or, or because I, I doubt it's just like you just come straight out and ask them like right away, because like you said, as a forensic, uh, I'm sorry. As a um, as a recreational therapist, you're doing a lot of different recreational things, and and again, this gets back to your email. How you said um, giving a group a challenging task, even in play, exposes so much about the group dynamic. Like exposes a lot about the person, and you discover things about them that you wouldn't really know otherwise. So these questions that you have about these people, or the things that you're trying to get them to recognize about themselves. Are they ever tackled directly or is it basically always indirectly through some sort of recreation that you are trying to find these answers? I would say both. Definitely uh, directly. A huge part of, at least in my training and experience, a huge part of a recreational therapy group is the processing. So we might have a challenging activity, but then we're going to pull them over, circle up and talk about it. And that's where we kind of turn it into a direct conversation. Uh, a lot of times I might ask, why do you think we just did this? And sometimes they're unable to see what my point was. Like, oh, I thought we were just playing volleyball. It's like, okay, so let's talk about actually what we were trying to accomplish besides, you know, 
a sport, an hour of sports. And uh, a, a good uh, expression or saying that I was taught is a good group kind of has the pattern of what, so what, now what? And so the what is the activity, what we're doing, and the so what is why did we do it? And, and this is kind of to help you process through what did we do? So what? Why did we do it? And then now what? What are we going to do about what we learned? Mm, I like that. Yeah. Now, what, when, when you're viewing your patients, what are the things that you are commonly looking for? So let's say you are playing a game of volleyball. Let's say you are watching them do an activity together that you're not a part of or something. What are like little things that you're trying to observe in them? Uh, that's a, that's uh, partially depending on on the goals uh, that we have. For some some people, um, maybe they're just uh, depressed or sad all the time, and so you're looking at their affect, and um, maybe uh, you know a, a patient is just always subdued and blunted and flat and they're not really showing any expression and you're just looking for a change in that affect and maybe you play some volleyball and maybe you do some crochet and maybe you do um some games and in one in one of those times maybe their affect changes and you see some spark of a way that you can reach them uh, that might be one thing you're looking for. You Interesting. Look- so that's like very clinical. Like even doctors at hospitals do that when they walk in like they'll make note of that in their patient notes and stuff. Yeah, yeah, there's there's definitely a very clinical aspect. And once again, um, certain settings are less clinical than others. Um, but yeah, and then uh, I, I also look for their interactions um, with each other. I, I used to work before this job. I worked with uh, a, at a youth center for adolescents who had um, mental illness. Usually it was they deal, dealt with bipolar disorder and uh I would just kind of watch them and it was able to process how they interacted with people because a lot of their issues were how they interact with their family. And those were the kind of um, behaviors that got them in trouble. And so you would ask something like, who, who thinks they're a leader? And four or five people raise their hand. But then you play volleyball and you can tell them, well, OK, here's the actual leader of your group. <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> pretty easily. So. All right. So let's finally dig into the whole forensic mental illness hospital piece because I, I feel like I could not have had a more interesting recreational therapist right into the show. So I'm, I'm so happy that it's you that is on the show to talk about um, being a recreational therapist because the forensic uh, mental illness hospital piece is so unique. Um, so I guess talk about the differences. First of all, uh, explain what a forensic mental illness hospital is for people that don't know what that is. Um, and then we'll just dive into how your day is quite different from other recreational therapists. Yeah, so I didn't even know much about what a forensic hospital was until I started working at one. And I think every state might do it differently, but I'm in California. So the state of California has a division of or a department of mental health um, or state hospitals, excuse me. And uh, a, the state hospital is for people in the forensic system, which means they've been arrested. Uh, that have a mental illness. And there are a few different penal codes. There's actually quite a bit, but there's two main penal codes that people will be familiar with. And those are, if you've heard of incompetent to stand trial and not guilty by reason of insanity. And those two penal codes make up the bulk of our patients. There's also some some other different kinds, but that's the two main ones. And we actually have two different compounds. And one side is mostly not guilty by reason of insanity, which we call NGI. And then incompetent to stand trial, which we call IST, is is on the other side. And those are the two main things. So incompetent to stand trial is they've been arrested or alleged of a crime, but they're not mentally healthy enough to stand trial. So those patients aren't even necessarily criminals because they've only had an alleged crime. They haven't gone to trial yet. And then the not guilty by reason of insanity are those people who have been uh, gone to trial or taken a plea and accepted that they did the crime, but they weren't accountable because of their mental illness. And they, then they're in the hospital instead of being in prison. Hmm. Man, this really makes me, it, it, sorry, just side note. I'm just thinking how much I would love to have a, a lawyer on the show that, that that's kind of like their specialty is, is representing people in these cases. Um, but yeah, so let's talk about the, the work that you do with these people. So how, 
what do you think is, I guess, the most different about your day to day from other recreational therapists? Um, I guess it would be the the goals that we're working towards every day and the kinds of things that our groups are trying to accomplish. Uh, when we're working with incompetent to stand trial demographic, we actually don't focus on well-being as much. We kind of want that as a side benefit, but the hospital wants every different discipline working towards competency, which is basically can it interact with the person without yelling at them or spouting off delusions or hallucinations and talking about them? And do they know the basic court knowledge? Like they need to know the four pleas that are available to them. And they need to know the roles of the courtroom, like a judge and a defendant and a prosecutor and what they do. And so everything we work towards is that because state of California wants them back to trial as quick as possible. Mm, so well-being is it, well-being turns into a secondary goal there, which is which is quite interesting. Wow, that's really interesting. Now, what about the other portion of the population that have already been convicted, but they, um, you know, are, are deemed to have been insane, I guess. Yeah, so that that side is uh, definitely more towards uh, it has a higher focus on well-being. And um, there's actually a big push right now to try and focus more on criminogenic factors, which are factors that are being researched that have a likeliness and a association with criminal behavior um, because the goal is to not only help them as a whole treatment team, help them have a well, uh, a quality of life, but to also help them avoid recidivism. For sure. And, and then basically have more or less than like a large scale study and feedback that you can give back to the the state, the country, the world of these are the types of things that we see in a lot of these people. So these are the types of things that maybe we need to focus on before people end up at a place like this. Right. Yeah. And, the, and, the, and that side uh, is going to have a much longer discharge criteria of things they need to do to be released. So even though they've been arrested and they're and it's very much a prison setting. It's locked down. There's barbed wire. There's, you know, correctional uh, officers. Um, it's still they have a little bit more freedom than in a prison. And uh, they are everyone has a different situation. Most of the time, they're not actually serving a sentence like five years. They're actually in there um, until they seem to have are, are deemed uh, fit to go back into society by their treatment team. And, and so that's usually a long list of things that they're able to do. They're able to take their medications regularly. They're able to hold uh, a job. They can have jobs in the hospital. They're able to identify their mental illness, identify the triggers of their mental illness, identify other medications. And so they have a, a much longer list. And so we try to help them uh, achieve all of those discharge criteria and prepare them to discharge. Very interesting. Now, when you are working with someone do you, I assume you have their file, right? It's not like you're coming into this blind. Like you, do you know what they were accused or convicted of when you're working with them? Yeah. Yeah. We have access to all the charts and it's a good idea to look at their, um, file bef you know, uh, before you start working with them too heavily. When we do an assessment, it's usually, um, when a patient first comes in, we sit down and we talk to them to try and figure out where their needs are, um, most. And so I like to do the assessment before I read their chart because some of these crimes are pretty scary and it's nice to not have um, those things run through your head when you're trying to get to know them for the first time. And I like the first impression to be them as a person and not their crime on a chart, you know? Yeah. So once you do read some of these things that are more scary, I guess, what is that like working with those people after that? Are, are you ever nervous, especially if... Let's say you know somebody has been convicted of something pretty heinous or, or like a really violent crime or something, and while you're working with them, they start to get a temper or something. That like how do like how do you work through that? Yeah, that's uh, pretty scary. I've had some tense moments. Never been too fearful of my safety. Um, I think uh, the people who work day to day with the patients uh, on the floor. We'll, we'll have more experiences with those, but we, um, yeah, I've never had an experience of having to pull my alarm, but everyone wears an alarm around their neck and, uh, those alarms can identify your location. So if I pull my alarm, it immediately alerts the hospital where I am and that I've called for help and people hopefully should come running, come running. 
How close by are other people to you at any given time? Um, pretty close. There's a, you know, a lot of the groups that we do are just in a room that's on the unit. And so the unit is full of nursing staff and doctors and uh, what are called psych techs. And uh, so they're usually close. And every group we run is required to have two facilitators. So we're never alone with the patients or we shouldn't be. Except for sometimes, you know, doing a one on one. But even then you try to make sure there's people close by. Right. Right. So I would love to, again, it's just so fortunate having you on the show to discuss recreational therapy because it's almost like we get to cover two totally different things at once. So I would like to talk about this piece a little more before we move back into recreational therapy. Um, I guess something that I would really wonder about in that sort of setting in a forensic hospital and it, it would just have me like questioning the whole court system and how these people got there a lot more. And I feel like especially nowadays, like so many people are diagnosed with some sort of mental illness, like what, especially if, if you're including things like anxiety or something like that. To what extent does the court allow something like an anxiety, a depression or something like that to come into play? when someone has committed a crime, because I feel like those things are so easy to diagnose and so almost over diagnosed nowadays, because I don't know anyone that's not anxious, you know, like I, I don't know anyone like that. I feel like it's just like a sign of the times that we're living in right now. And like how much stuff is coming at us all the time that people just live with a lot more anxiety than they used to and stuff. So is that the type of thing that could quote unquote, like, get you off uh, like get you out of being like convicted normally in a trial and just in in ending up at a forensic hospital like yours um and how yeah i guess how does the court try to determine these things if if somebody is actually like has a has like a certifiable mental illness that they need to be where you're at as opposed to going to prison yeah so i'm not a lawyer so i'm i might get some i don't know the finer points of this but I do know the basics and uh, the the um, penal code for not guilty by reason of insanity. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that you were mentally ill or it doesn't mean you were just mentally ill when you committed your crime. It means that your mental illness was a direct factor in you committing that crime and you would not have had you not had that crime. So something like, oh, I just have some anxiety or, or depression is not going to get you that. It's usually going to be something like schizophrenia or the hallucinations had you fearing for your life. Um, a lot of times these people feel like they're going to be attacked or hurt by someone. And so they hurt them in a preventative measure. Mm. Um, there's uh, also schizoaffective disorder, some personality disorders. Those are the main ones we see. And and the things like uh, anxiety and depression are sometimes secondary diagnoses. But I've never seen anyone come in who's primary diagnosis is anxiety. Um, that's not going to get you off. Um, and l- at least that, not that I've seen. And they also have, <clears throat> it's, I was fortunate to go to a conference and learn a little bit more about this from a guy who's made a career of doing this, but they have psychiatrists come into the courtroom and usually the prosecution and the defense both have one and they present their cases to the jury. But there's some big things that they look for to um, show whether or not that person was mentally ill. And one of the big ones is acknowledgement of the wrongness. And you can try to deduce from their behavior how wrong they thought what they were doing because um, the criteria needs needs them to to believe they were doing the right thing. So if they honestly believed that they were in self-defense, even though it was due to a hallucination, they wouldn't run when the police showed up. So there's cases where someone had committed a horrible, violent crime and the police showed up and they just stood there. Right. And it's so, so, and so funny. This reminds piece of evidence. Yeah. Yeah. I feel fortunate that I've had, there was an episode of the show. I don't know if you listened to it with a paranoid schizophrenic, um, who kind of went over experiences in his life as a paranoid schizophrenic. And, um, when he was the first time that he was ever checked into a mental hospital, rather than being fearful of that, um, because he was having a psychotic break at the time and didn't know he was basically going to be like it, more or less like in prison for the next like month of his life because he wasn't allowed to leave. He was so happy 
when he was the, when he came to the front desk because he thought that people were after him. So he was like, "Oh my god, thank god, like you guys are going to put me in a room. Thank god you guys are like these people are after me right now." And it would be no different than if he was, you know, hurting someone at that time or something if the cops showed up, he would be like, "Oh, thank god, like the cops are here." Like Yes, like this, I'm telling you, like this person's the devil. Like, thank God the cops are here so they can arrest this devil person right here. You know, like you said, you would never run for the cops in that situation. Right. Yeah. And there's a lot of experience of someone doing some some scary things and being excited to see the officers. And oftentimes they're the one calling it in. Like, I just finally defeated the devil. Come get him, you know, or yeah. something like that. Um, and then um, I think another misconception that I had before I started working here, and you even used the word was like, how does someone use mental illness to get off? And uh, it's not not usually going to be a much better situation for them um, overall to get a diagnosis of not guilty by reason of insanity. The hospital is a better setting to be at than a prison, but it's still very prison like they have prison uniforms. They're locked down. They have some opportunity to walk around the grounds certain hours of the day. But in a lot of ways, it's very much prison like. So I would say it's definitely a better situation uh, than being in prison. But also, most of the way that the sentencing works, and every case is different, but a lot of times they're just sentenced to come to the hospital until they're deemed fit by their treatment team. And so that that no longer has a number on it. So there was an instance of a gentleman who was looking at five to ten years for, I think, burglary or carjacking or something, and he he had schizophrenia at the time and went for a not guilty by reason of insanity case. And he ended up being there for like 30 or 35 years. Wow. Whereas his max sentencing on a normal guilty plea would have been five or 10 years. So sometimes they're actually doing a lot more time than they would have because they get into the hospital and, and aren't viewed as mentally fit to go back into the community. Wow. Interesting. Do you work often with the other people in the treatment team? And I guess more importantly, like, do you guys uh, get together periodically for like a round table on a particular patient? Like everyone says what they've been doing with that patient. Yeah, that's depending on the unit and the penal code. The timing is a little different, but usually at least once a quarter, the treatment team will get together and discuss every patient. So it's actually more like once a week for us, but for the patient wise, we're talking about We'll get together one week and talk about like two or three patients. And so over the course of three months, we've talked, you know, every patient is being come up every three months. And we'll talk specifically about that patient and we'll call them in and we call it a conference. And then they get to ask us questions. We tell them how they're doing. We tell them things we want to see them change. They tell us their problems. And so, yeah, at least quarterly, every patient is being discussed amongst the treatment team. Okay. Um, I would love to know how you even got this job like how do you hear about a job like this how do you end up with this job as a recreational therapist yeah so this job i'm actually in a facebook group of alumni from my school that did recreation therapy and whenever someone hears about a job they post it uh, in this private facebook group and this was someone i didn't even know had heard about it through a friend and they posted it and uh, and i applied so yeah, that's that's how I heard about working here. And I didn't even know necessarily much about Forensic Hospital. I just knew I wanted to be in Southern California and the job posting had a good salary. So yeah, I that's great. Um, all right. Let's get back into the recreational therapy part of things a little bit more. So again, to reference your email, you said that sometimes you do one on one therapy, but a lot can happen when you're in group therapy. Um, so let's talk about that a little bit. Why would you do group therapy versus one on one? And um, what sorts of things do you feel like one is better than the other for? Um, yeah, we do a lot. Like right now and in the jobs I've had before, I'm saying probably 90 or 95% um, group therapy. And I think part of that is just because we have such a huge caseload. Uh, 35 patients is, is normal at the hospital I'm at. My job before this was somewhere between 30 and 40 and fluctuated. And so to do one-on-one sessions with each of your patients is almost impossible. And uh, we also, we focus on a lot of things that are easily observed and processed in a group setting. Um, And they usually have a, you know, psychologist or a psychiatrist or a um, licensed clinical social worker who works a lot with one-on-one on on a lot of those deep personal issues. 
So as a recreation therapist, I'm probably not going to sit down with someone and talk about the history of their abuse uh, in any kind of detail. It might come up from time to time, but they're probably going to talk in length with that about that with a, you know, different person on the treatment team. Right. Which is like a, a psychotherapist or something. Yeah, exactly. And so and just from talking to them, uh, talking to the other people on the team and reading their charts, I'll have an idea of those issues on a surface level and be able to maybe address some of those things in a group setting. But we're uh, have the opportunity to work more on things like communication and appropriate social skills and substance recovery. And so those things are a lot um, better addressed in a group setting, especially communication, social skills, uh, those kinds of things. And in a forensic setting, they have to um, be able to interact with their legal counsel or their public defender. And sometimes that's just the uh, the thing that they need to get out there is they don't have the appropriate interactions to talk to people. And so we get to practice that in a group setting, even if it's something such as volleyball. Like, can you communicate as a team to, like, try and successfully play the game? Right, right. So uh, what percentage? It sounds like you do a little bit more uh, like serious therapy than other forms of recreational therapy, which like from the research that I did, it's uh, like uh, even other therapists will say and you said in your own email, like, um, you know, the people your coworkers get jealous because it looks like you just play all day. And I saw a YouTube video where this recreational therapist specifically said, I just get to play games all day. It's great. Like so, it, but it sounds like you your job is a little bit more like serious than other recreational therapists. Would that be correct? Or when you're talking about these things of getting people to uh, to communicate properly and, and all these things, is that always done via recreation? Like, is it always done via a game and fun or whatever? Or sometimes is it like? okay, we're all going to sit in a circle and we're all going to talk about our feelings right now. And therefore it's like kind of less of a game. It's a little bit more like serious of a setting. Um, yeah, it's a lot to unpack there. I think part of it would just be me. I personally like to try and get something out of every group. Um, I think I try to have some kind of fun activity. Um, but I have had processing groups where I'll, in my, in my plan, I'll lay it out. We're going to talk for five minutes. Then we're going to do this activity for 45 minutes. And sometimes that talking for five minutes turns into the whole hour. And, uh, and I'm not the one to break up a good discussion. And if it's going good places, we might just sit and talk for an hour. Yeah. Um, but I don't usually plan on doing that. And there are more people who might, some rec th recreation therapists who just have play groups and there is benefits to those. But my opinion is that you can get more than one thing out of a group. So maybe the patients just think they're playing volleyball, but I have, you know, a goal in mind behind that. And so sometimes we are just playing and sometimes we're trying to focus on diversion, which leisure, one of the benefits of leisure, it's a diversion, right? You had a hard week at work and you want to just go hike. Well, why do people do that? Sometimes it's just to take a break and divert their themselves from the stresses of their regular day-to-day -day life. And that's also beneficial to someone in a stressful setting, such as a hospital or a treatment center. Sometimes they just need to go play a sport or go do some recreation that's just for fun. And they don't have to process after how they feel about it. Yeah, totally. And so even when I'm doing those kinds of groups, I at least personally have a goal in mind that I'm, that I'm also trying to do. Because I feel like it's irresponsible of me to be a trained professional therapist and just kind of roll a volleyball out there and sit down and... You know, like you could do that. You could come and play volleyball with, with a group of patients. I could so, definitely do that. Right. And so I feel like it would be irresponsible of me to do that without having some some other treatment goals, even if those patients aren't aware of them and if we're not necessarily processing them that day. Yeah. So to that point, is it ever difficult to get the patients to kind of come out of their shell because they know that you're watching them like if they're playing volleyball are they kind of just thinking or, or let's say you're doing a, a group discussion thing or something um they is there a part of them that knows that they're being analyzed by you so they kind of stay closed off yeah i think that partially depends on the patient and uh, i think it was oprah who said i, I don't remember the exact time but it's something like five or ten minutes um after five or ten minutes the person that she's talking to kind of forgets the cameras there yeah and if you get past those five or 10 minutes, they start to just talk as they would sitting in their living room. And I think it's the same thing 
we have the uh, term honeymoon period, and it's a different length for every patient. But a lot of times the new admit will come in and just be a great, great patient for three weeks, four weeks. And uh, and that's kind of like I would uh, compare that to being aware that the camera is there. Right. They they know they're being watched. They know they're being analyzed. But after a while, they they forget it's there and they start to be themselves. And then you can start to deal with the real issues. And that's a different length for, for every patient. But, yes, that is a problem. Uh, we I did have a patient one time uh, when I worked with adolescents who refused to talk and uh, selectively mute is what they call it. And he I, I it was almost a year or more. He never would never talk to me. So, wow. Yeah, that's a, a little bit of an extreme case, but but it does happen. And I think one of the other benefits uh, that I want to mention of recreational therapy is we develop such a good rapport with these people that um, they open up to us. Uh, there's times I think everyone on the treatment team is important, but there's times when they don't want to work with that nurse who gives them their meds every day. They don't want to work with a psychiatrist who they have to talk about their issues with every day. And so sometimes bringing in the guy who plays basketball with them every day all of a sudden they're willing to open up and, and talk through an issue so there have been a few occasions where i'll get a call and they're like hey so-and-so won't talk to anyone he just wants you to come down that's and so because great. we have yeah because we have that rapport that's based more on a recreation and leisure aspect there's not that uh frustrating you're always trying to get me to talk about my feelings kind of relationship yeah for sure and in that way let's say you're playing basketball or something it's like Maybe they even open up to you about being frustrated with one of the other with the fact of like, oh, I hate it when I have to talk to that one psychotherapist or something. And then you actually get to find out why they hate it, which can be so illuminating, I'm sure. Yeah, I've had some of those exact experiences. Uh, my last my last job when I worked with adolescents, my office was right by the gym and the patients had you know scheduled gym time, just kind of open P.E., and whenever I'd walk past, if I had a sperm wall, I'd peek in. And if my if my unit was in there, I'd go in and shoot hoops. And uh, just for, you know, however much time I had, 10 or 15 minutes. And it built, it did so much more than I ever realized. Um, going and shooting hoops for a spare five or 10 minutes every time. I actually had a kid write me after he went home saying, hey, you had such an influence on me shooting hoops and talking to me. I felt like I could talk to you about so many things. I actually lost that like, he was an overweight kid. He's like, I lost like 20 or 30 pounds and I'm on my high school basketball team now. And I attribute a lot of that to you helping me out. Wow, that's and awesome. I never, right, and I thought I was just shooting hoops with him. So, Yeah, like that, you said, it's like is, these, I feel like that's the perfect story to sum up why this is an important thing that you're doing. Because I, I feel like um, somebody who is very... Uh, jaded or just like a crotchety old person or something could be like recreational therapy like that sounds silly like why would we ever you know like these people should just go see a regular therapist or not even see a regular therapist and just get better and it's like there is so much to be said for the for the comfort that someone can feel and then that being the path to to healing and getting better um it, like some people just really really need that yeah. And a, another thing I never mentioned was a big aspect of our profession is leisure education, which is where we're just teaching people about stuff that's available. And that is a huge overlap into substance recovery, which surprise, surprise, there's a lot of people at a mental institution that have uh, sub substance abuse issues. And there's a, just a lot of overlap between mental illness and, and substance abuse. And you go into this group and just the other day, I got out a, a whiteboard marker and I said, all right, just tell me 10 things you can do on a Saturday when you're bored. Well, they, could, they couldn't do it. The, you know, a lot of times they get into drugs when they're bored and they don't have right. um, the education of all the leisure that is available to them. And so you might say like, well, why don't you guys uh, go get in a basketball league? Well, we can't afford that. Well, did you know a lot of cities offer free leagues? Oh, no, we didn't know that. And uh, And so just... Part of our job is to educate people on different aspects of leisure or different activities and different hobbies that they could get themselves into. Because if you've met someone and they said they couldn't identify any hobbies they have, you know, we would say that they were an unbalanced person. And so we hope to have these people discharge whatever facility we're working at with a greater 
sense of meaning or purpose in their leisure lifestyle by having a new hobby or new activities that they are able to do. So. Yeah. And if somebody has like an addictive, obsessive sort of personalities, there's certain hobbies that that would go great with, you know, like if they got into like bonsai, like trees or, or like yeah. coll- collecting stamps or something, you know, like it, those sorts of things would be perfect for someone like that. Yeah. I actually really want to try and get a bonsai group going. I listened to that, your episode on on bonsai oh yeah yeah and i thought that would be a really great group because there's so many metaphors you could draw from working on that too man no kidding good point um do you find that there are certain types of people that do better with recreational therapy than others or that benefit more from it than others yeah i I would say so um it also depends on on what goal you're trying to achieve. I feel like in the physical disability realm, there's so many uh, opportunities to completely uh, achieve a goal, right? So, for example, if someone loses a leg that was a world-class skier, well, there's adaptive equipment that allows a one-legged person or a no-legged person to continue to ski. So if the goal is, I used to ski, I lost my legs, I want to ski again, well, there's equipment out there that 100% solves that problem. Whereas we're never going to 100% solve schizophrenia. Right. And so in that case, in the physical um, aspect, recreation therapy can 100% solve people's problems. And that's another aspect of it is the, the physical side. Um, I just got became a quadriplegic. So now all my hobbies are things I can't do. And a job of a recreation therapist would be to say, oh, yes, there is. Let me show you. And one of the cool things that we got to learn about in in college was that there's a huge uh, group of people that participate in quad rugby. And it's actually rugby for people who are quadriplegics. And it is quite impressive to watch these guys play. If you haven't ever, I would recommend people go look at that on YouTube. That's incredible. Yeah, I'll put a link to that in the uh, show notes for this. I can't imagine what that would be like. And so depending on which um, vertebrae, there's just the, you know, there's a set of vertebrae that would qualify, classify someone as quadriplegic. So some of them have more, uh, some still have some arm movement, but not fully. And uh, they get in these, in these specially designed wheelchairs and they're just as rough as any other rugby you've ever seen. <laughs> I bet. And so, so I, I feel like uh, to answer, I'm roundabout answer your question. It's uh, those people maybe benefit more from rep- recreation therapy just because they can have uh, a more whole and a more clear cut solution to their problem than like I suffer from schizophrenia or bipolar and now I'm I manage it better, but it's not going away, you know, so that's that's a harder one to analyze exactly how beneficial rec therapy is. But I wouldn't say it's less beneficial. Maybe it's just less clear cut right. uh, being able to measure that. Uh, also, there's been a lot of research that um, PTSD benefits a lot from from rec therapy and as well as autism. All right. So all this makes me wonder more what the training and schooling is like for a recreational therapist, because um, as you were just saying, like there's the physical aspect of recreational therapy, but then there's also the therapist aspect of recreational therapy, like the, the therapist that most people would think of, like a psychotherapist. It's like you you straddle this line between a physical therapist and a psychotherapist it's like you're a little bit of both so what is the schooling and training like for recreational therapy yeah so it's actually a bachelor's degree to be a practitioner you can obviously go on to get a doctorate if you want to be a professor but it's one of the few if only therapy fields that i've heard of where you can be professionally certified and licensed with only a bachelor's degree and uh I find I found that awesome, which is one of the things that drew me into the job is like, wait, I get to do therapy and I don't have to go to grad school. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> um, but yeah, we we had a lot of specific um, recreation therapy classes and those were pretty heavily focused on the psychotherapy aspect and and how we would uh, implement that into different demographics. But then there was also required classes like mountain biking and <laughs> um, well, th- there's like 10 different uh classes like mountain biking hiking canyoneering and we had to take two or three of those unbelievable so So like not only do you get to play games for a living you also get to play games while you're in school if you decide that this is what you (laughs) want to do yes yes 
And then there's also there are also a lot of psychology classes that we just took um, instead of having separate classes. We just took classes from the psychology department. Right. And uh, and so I actually uh, could have gotten a double major in psychology with like one extra semester. Um, I think every program will be different, but there's a lot of overlap there. So, okay, cool. Gotcha. Um, what do you think makes for a good day or, or what makes you feel like a day was a success? And when I feel like I reached a patient, because there's a lot of days where that doesn't feel like it happened. And, uh, you wonder if you're just there, like what you're doing there. Cause patients don't want to listen to you sometimes, or you're here to try and help them improve communication through table games. And they just want to play monopoly and don't want to listen to you. And, uh, sometimes it's hard to feel like you're um, making a difference or reaching the patients because it is usually a very slow, gradual process. And sometimes it takes a lot of time just to build the rapport to where you can start um, reaching them. So to me, a good day is when I when I felt like I reached a patient and when I did uh, groups that were well attended and well participated because the groups that I run are, well, they're all optional. So I might only have two or three people show up that want to do something that day. And sometimes I'll have 15 or 20 people and like a lot of engagement. And so those days are a lot better when I feel like the stuff that I'm providing is stuff that the patients want to engage in. Definitely. What has been, have you had a like most memorable day ever on the job or like a couple days that really stick out to you amongst others? Um, if I'm able to go to my whole career, uh, at my, last facility where I worked with adolescents, they were, it was, they lived there and it was locked down, but they were able to leave the facility if they had a certain consistent, you know, positive behavior. And so we would, one of the best parts about our job is during the summer, we would do adventure outings, which were overnight camping trips involving different activities. So we would do whitewater rafting and canoeing and rock climbing. And I think one of my favorite days was I, we would go down to Moab because I used to work in Utah. So we would drive down to Moab area and we would go through Arches National Park. Mm. And just to see a van of like eight or nine teenage boys who had never been to a national park and to see them walk around Arches and then to see them get the next morning. Then we camp out and to see boys that had never made a s'more. And they don't know what that is. And they had never slept in a tent. They had never put up a tent. Watching that is hilarious. And then watching them climb into a raft. They'd never been on a river before. Because some of these kids came from such poor circumstances. Right. And I don't mean, I don't necessarily mean financially, although that, that also. But just, you know, broken homes and, and sad circumstances. So just that, I guess that's cheating because we stayed overnight. So it was two days. But those two days, there was one in particular where like the kids were just so in awe of the things that they had never been exposed to and just to show them this world of hiking, camping, making s'mores, going on the river, stuff they had never even known you could do. And just to see their uh, expressions was amazing. Imagine that the conversations that you get to have at that time are so amazing too. To, to take somebody so far out of their usual situation and expose them to these things that they've never been exposed to before um especially in a, in a nature setting like that i imagine just like causes someone to open up a little bit more yeah tons sometimes that's great um what uh what is the pay like for this andrew like do, so, do like in does that get tiered differently depending on um like i know how you were saying you only need a bachelor's for this but if you wanted to you could get a master's or a phd or something like that would that have any sort of change in it at most facilities, no. Um, usually a master's and a PhD, or so you're going to go back to teach it um, at a at a higher higher educational facility, university, I should just say. Right. Um, but there are jobs that will give you a slight bump for having a master's. I don't think I would get anywhere I'm at. And definitely, if you're getting into recreation therapy, you're doing it because you love helping people. You love recreation and not because you want to make a lot of money. <laughs> it's, it's not a very good pay. If you work in a forensic setting where you're either some prisons have a rec therapy, recreation therapist or a state hospital, which is essentially a prison, 
you're going to get a higher pay just because of the perceived risk. I don't yeah, feel like there's supply and demand. Risk. Yeah, there's yeah. a lot less people that want to work there. Whereas the job was where I was where I was before, where we were going rock climbing and river rafting, the pay is a lot less because it's well, it's easy to find people to do that. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so it's not it's not a very high paying job. It's uh it's crazy how many how many like really necessary jobs are just not high paying at all. Like I feel like every every really important job that I have on the show is never paid well. It just like goes hand in hand. That's funny, isn't it? Yeah. Um, all right, Andrew, let's go ahead and finish this thing up rather than give advice for how to become a recreational therapist, because that's obviously go to school and then get certified. Um, let's give advice to people who are struggling with some sort of mental illness themselves or someone they know is struggling with mental illness that maybe isn't typical therapy sort of advice because you are a recreational therapist. Yeah, I would say, um, make sure you're finding satisfaction in your leisure. Um, don't rely on that alone. Definitely get help. Uh, definitely talk to someone about it. Talk to a someone who can diagnose a mental illness. That's not something that recreation therapists do. But from from my perspective, I would say dive into a hobby. There's um, so many benefits from getting out, and even if, especially if you can find one that's active in some way. Um, you know, the research shows when you're active and and participating in some kind of recreation that gets you moving there's endorphins and chemicals that release in the brain that that just help you feel better so especially if you have something that's making you feel sad or depressed uh get out there and and get a new hobby fill your time uh but if it's also something serious make sure you get help and talk to a professional about that And, and i don't think that uh um i would ever recommend recreation therapy without also taking proper medications Mm, we're not we're not a replacement for it so yeah for sure man andrew great advice uh thank you so much for coming on the show andrew this has been so great oh thanks so much for having me it's been a blast hey everyone it's blake i hope you all enjoyed the episode if you did i would appreciate it so much if you considered leaving a review for the show on itunes i swear it'll only take like two minutes um just search for the show on itunes click on it click on ratings and reviews you can leave a quick review um or just uh keep listening to the show i appreciate that as well or tell a friend about the show or something and if you have any ideas for the show if you have a particular job or hobby that you would like to hear interviewed on the show if you yourself think that you do something interview worthy and you would like to tell the world about what this job or hobby is that you have head on over to halfhourintern.com there's a link right there at the top that says submit your ideas and you could submit your ideas for the show be them uh, somebody else that you would like me to interview a particular field that you would like to hear about or even if it is you yourself that would like to come on the show thanks so much for listening you guys